did Dante really mean all the things we say that Dante is meaning? Well, that's a big question and a great question. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. This episode is an interpolated episode, one of the episodes in which we actually don't deal with a passage in the poem. And this episode came about because of the rather epic nature of the previous episode on Erichtho, the witch that brings Virgil to the bottom of hell or forces Virgil to the bottom of the hell in the backstory that Virgil told. And if you listen to that episode, you know I gave, I don't know, 500 million ways that Erichtho functions inside comedy. So I got in a big discussion with someone online. I love this. And the basic question was, Do you really think Dante intended all of that? So this is a podcast to answer that question. Did Dante intend all of this? I know it might seem like a funny question, but it is so important. So sit back. Let's talk a minute. Let's talk about whether Dante hmm, intended all of this interpretive framework, all of these answers, all these wild tangents. The medieval answer is the first answer. And the medieval answer, the answer in Dante's day, within just a few years of his death, was yes. The reason that answer was given, yes, he intended all of this and much more, is because the poem became increasingly seen as inspired. Thus, Boccaccio's name for it, the divine comedy. It's not divine necessarily because it deals with things of God, but divine partly because it is divinely inspired. And we will later see long down the road from this moment in Inferno that when we get up into the Paradiso, Dante himself will start making inspirational claims for his own poem. If the poem is inspired by God, let's just say the medieval answer would be then yes. Whether Dante the poet intended all of this, or whether some divine inspiration caused all this to happen in the poem is really irrelevant. It's like the kind of um, answer about how did, let's say, the writers of the Gospels write the Gospels if you're religious. They are a conduit, a tool, and yet uh, the orthodox answer is that they're inspired to write the text, and yet that inspiration does not override their personalities. So let's say in the case of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's, uh, their personalities are still intact. This assumes, of course, that you believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels that are under their names. But the idea here, the Orthodox idea, is that they came with all of their theirness, all of their humanness, all of their personality. And it's not that they were typewriters that wrote down the text, but rather they were so inspired by God that these texts came out of them inspirationally with their personalities intact. And thus, The orthodox answer is that, let's say, Matthew's gospel, since Matthew was a tax collector, Matthew's gospel is much more concerned with political issues around Judaism and the Messiah. And since John was this disciple who was allegedly Jesus's favorite or that leaned on Jesus's breast, we have this whole notion in John's gospel of a much more um, familial, uh, kindred relationship with the Messiah that occurs in that 
that gospel. That's all part of that, and we can carry that right up to comedy in the medieval answer and say that, therefore, our poet's personality is intact, love of Beatrice, all that kind of stuff, and yet he himself is a divine channel. And so the answer to did Dante intend all of this is yes. Now let's pass on. The 18th century answer, the age of the neoclassical scholars, the age of the Enlightenment, the 18th century answer is no. Dante did not. That's because the poem began to be seen as a muddled mess. Um, and the goal of critics, the goal of rationalist critics, was to straighten it out. And that Dante had kind of left a uh, mess, and somebody had to fix it. It's, the same, it's basically the same way many of those critics treated Shakespeare. They rewrote Lear. They rewrote various Shakespeare plays because they didn't conform to a rationalist perspective of the world. I like to think of the final resting place of this 18th century answer of, well, we got a muddled text and we got to straighten it out. I like to think that the final resting place of this neoclassical thought is actually the poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's translation in the mid-19th century. Longfellow's translation straightens out the comedy in many ways. And a lot of the cracks and weirdo places that I've pointed out along the way, Longfellow tends to write the translation in such a way that he glosses over it. Longfellow himself is not a neoclassical figure. He's much more of a romantic figure. But I see that translation in English as kind of the final resting place of this idea that, oh, we got a text. It's messed up. You know, medievals could barely think with their, with their heads, much less their hands. So the text is messed up, and we got to straighten it out and make it better. All right? That's the... 18th century neoclassical answer. Let's come to the modern answer. No, he didn't. Dante did not intend all of this. It's, there's no way that anyone could intend multiple layers of an erichtho as we went through in the last episode. Then how does all that interpretive strategy and framework happen? I have five answers to that. You know I've got lots of answers. I got five answers to that of how does all that interpretive strategy work if Dante himself didn't necessarily intend all of that to be in the text. Okay, first one. The poet leaves his text open to multiple interpretations. This is so fundamental to what happens in Inferno and in Purgatorio, not so much in Paradiso, but in Inferno and in Purgatorio, that the poet leaves the poem open to multiple interpretations. Think back to the first canto, lines 10 through 12, wakes up in the dark wood, remember, way is lost, etc. And then comes these lines, I cannot rightly say how I got there. I was so full of sleep at the moment when I abandoned the true way. Right there, I cannot rightly say how I got there. The poet has left the door open to interpretation, left the door open to multiple ways to read it. That invites me to say, wait, how did you get there? Or it invites me to posit answers to that question. If the poet can't answer it or won't answer it, then I'm invited into the interpretive space with the poet. And now I can start to brew theories. I can say, well, you know what? I'm going to start looking forward in the poem. And I'm going to start seeing places where, why did he end up in this 
Darkwood? Why was he so sleepy? This has led to all kinds of theories in the poem. Wait till we get down to Brunetto Latini, allegedly Dante's teacher. Brunetto Latini. Many people have seen the conversation with Latini as a hint that Dante himself, many modern people, have seen this hint that the conversation with Brunetto Latini lets us know that Dante was, mm, let's let's put it this way, bi-curious, that he was open to sexuality beyond heterosexuality. I don't buy that at all. I'd like to buy it as a gay man. I don't buy it. But because Dante has left the door open, the poet has left the door open, I cannot rightly say how I got there, it leads people to start looking for explanations down the way. I'm much more, as you will hear when we get there, amongst the suicides, I much more hear a reference in the suicides to the opening canto and think that the poet in exile, on the run, may have been having suicidal thoughts, and that may be the genesis of the poem itself, a way to work out those suicidal thoughts. But you'll hear me say that much when we get down there. But again, by leaving the poem open, by leaving these gaps in the poem, by leaving spaces inside the work, you invite me, the reader, into it, and then you invite me to try to answer it. A lesser writer, a lesser artist, would try to close all the gaps and close them up so that they're tight and the mortars all between the bricks. Those are turgid texts. Those are texts that don't really need a podcast to walk passage by passage through them. No one's going to walk passage by passage through Alfred Lord Tennyson's Idols of the King. And the reason that is is because Tennyson has walled off a lot of my space in the poem and filled it in with his own growing fears of societal collapse and social collapse and entropy and the coming notions of entropy as the foundation of reality and all that stuff. It's sitting there in Idols of the King and, furthermore, Tennyson has filled it in for me. Our poet has left gaps. Okay, Two, our poet is working in an intertextual space. What do I mean by that? I mean he is working in a space in which his text is built off other texts. Let me give you an example of this. Let's go back to Canto 8, and we're in about line 44 through 45, right in there, when uh, Filippo Argenti first comes out of the mud, and Dante the Pilgrim says, I recognize you, and Virgil puts down Argenti, and then Virgil turns around to the Pilgrim and says, indignant soul, blessed is she who was pregnant with you. And I told you, oh, remember I told you the, all these biblical references, Ephesians 4.26, let not the sun go down on your wrath, a kind of righteous indignation, be angry and sin not. I told you the passage in Luke eleven twenty seven. blessed is the womb that bore you, said of the Messiah. I told you about the Ave Maria in Luke 1, 28. We've got all these passages running under it, and that's just one example. Our poet, Dante, is working in an intertextual space, an intertextual space that involves Ovid, Lucan, we're just getting to Lucan, Virgil, the Aeneid, we're getting even farther into Virgil as we go forward. We're going to see more of the Georgics, we're going to see more of Virgil's other writings start to appear in the poem, and other works besides these, Aristotle. Remember, Virgil says to our pilgrim, oh, might go back to your science, and I told you that was a reference to Aristotle. And really, actually, a reference to Thomas Aquinas on Aristotle. See what I mean? 
the poet is working in an intertextual space. And once you work inside of an intertextual space, you permit all kinds of, how do I say this, all kinds of information to flow into a text from these other texts. If I was writing, a, let's say I was writing a, a text, and and I was writing a text, I don't know, and I was quoting a lot of Emily Dickinson. If you know my other podcast, Lyric Life, you know I love Emily Dickinson. Okay, let's say I was writing a novel, and I was inserting lines from Emily Dickinson inside my novel that is automatically going to open up interpretive space because you're going to run out to that Dickinson poem. And maybe you're going to find things inside that poem that I didn't even intend. I I don't know. I chose the line, uh, we grow accustomed to the dark when light is put away. I chose that line and put it inside my novel. Somebody, Some character says it. But you go through that poem and you say, oh, inside that poem, there's this weird moment where someone hits their forehead in the tree in the dark, which there is. And you would then bring that back and say, see, he's talking about forehead space, cranial space. He's talking about mental patterns of growing accustomed to the dark. So you would go out to that other poem and bring its space into my work. That's exactly what's happening with Dante. The space inside the Bible, the Aeneid, the Georgics, Lucas Pharsalia, uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, these are entering into this poem. Aquinas's Summa Theologica, it's all entering into this poem. And as it enters, it opens spaces out into other places. So our poet, by opening up the poem with gaps and by working inside an intertextual space is allowing his text to have a multitude of interpretations. Okay, number three. The poet himself does not close down interpretation. I touched on this with a bit about letting the poem be open to interpretation, but I just want to re-emphasize it. Let's go back to Canto 9, and let's go to an early part of the bit where Virgil, we just passed this, comes back from the walls of Dis, and he's unsure, and if you remember, he says, we still should be able to win this fight unless, and then the sentence trails off. That is leaving the poem open to interpretive space. We can dance on that unless for forever. It's not just a gap like I wasn't certain how I got there. The poem itself has a gap in it, not even a stated gap by the poet, but the language itself breaks in places. And when it does, that opens the text up for me to step again right in the center of it. Now, I'm telling you all of this, and I'm thinking in my head about the next passage and the next episode of this podcast and the moment in which the poet, for the first time, closes down interpretation. But we'll save that for the next episode of this podcast. But for right now, we can say that the poet is opening up the poem by refusing to close down the space of interpretation, leaving it completely open open to the reader. This is unlike the convivio, Dante's work, the convivio or the banquet. In the convivio, Dante is at much pains to close down the interpretive access to the work. It's one of the ways that makes the, that the work is so hard to read. If you read the convivio or the, the banquet, Dante is essentially offering some um, canzoni, some long ballad-like poems, and he's giving his own readings or interpretations of those poems. And in so doing, he's just closing it off. 
He's telling me what this canzone means. Uh, here it is. I wrote it. Now let me explain it to you. He does this in the Vita Nuova too. He offers a poem, a sonnet, a canzone, something, a piece of poetry that he's written in praise of Beatrice. And then he has to close it up and tell you what it means. That move to close it up is the move of a much less secure writer. And somehow in comedy, he doesn't feel the need, at least in Inferno and Purgatorio, to close it down. Okay, the fourth reason that so much interpretation inside the poem can happen. Dante grants his characters human motivations. My gosh, by giving his characters more than just an allegorical mm, underpinning, but giving them actually human emotions, this automatically opens the poem to multiple interpretive frameworks. Let me give you an example. At the end of Canto V with Francesca, after she tells her story, right? She says, you know, that she's come to this terrible spot. They're reading, they're reading, Paolo, they're reading the book together. He leans over and kisses her. That day we didn't read any further. And then, if you remember, the pilgrim says all the time, this spirit said this. The other one beside her wailed, Paolo such that pity overcame me as if I died and I collapsed as a dead body collapses. That human motivation allowed me to enter the poem and talk about the sexuality of the poet, the sexuality of the poet's relationship with Beatrice, because the character of the pilgrim right there is given a very human emotion, overcome with passion, passing out from too much passion because of that humanizing function inside of the characters, inside Virgil now, inside Dante, and later inside some other characters, because of that humanizing motivation, we can step inside the characters. This is one of the reasons we can get inside Francesca. We can get inside that space that Francesca inhabits because her motivations are so human, whether it is to justify herself, to justify her misdeeds, whether it is to seduce the poet, whether it is to pull one, uh, one over on the poet besides the pilgrim, but the poet himself, as I argued in that episode of the podcast, all of that, that humanness that sits inside of Francesca allows us into that space for greater and greater interpretation. Okay, and finally, number five. The poet takes the tale beyond his own learning. Here's how it goes. He offers his own learning clearly in it, whether it be about Dame Fortune and Boethius or here about Erichtho, having just passed this, and his reading of the Pharsalia. He could easily have done all that I did, explain who Erichtho is, go through the long story about book six of the Pharsalia, tell you all that backstory about who this witch is and what she does and how she functions in that poem and all that stuff, but instead he doesn't. Instead, he does all his research, the poet does all his research, and then, I don't want to say forgets it, but lets it sit in the background, lets it sit back behind him somewhere. And in doing that, he's not having to bring his own learning forward or 
improve his own learning inside of Inferno and Purgatorio. Paradiso is different, but we have to wait for all of that. So by doing this, by having all of this knowledge and learning sitting behind him and then essentially jettisoning it and saying, I'm going to write a plot with characters in it, he set up the whole thing for interpretive mayhem unbelievable mayhem. I, I I lead an online book group. We just came off reading Anthony Trollope's The Way We Live Now. And one of the things that happened in the last discussion of this group, which was so amazing, is that so many people seemed as if they were reading completely different books. We had a fabulous discussion in which several people just didn't seem to be reading the same book at once. Why was that? Because the novel itself had opened itself up to an interpretive well, here's the fancy word, multiplicity. And by doing that, Trollope has allowed more people into the space of his novel. Dante, much, much more so than Trollope because, well, of course, Dante is a much, much better artist than Trollope. And because of that, these factors open the poem up to this this interpretive space in which we can dance around with Erichtho for forever because the poet has set up the poem with gaps, with holes, with intertextual connections, with human motivations in the characters, and with the ability to step into a plot beyond the poet's own learning, not to rehearse how fancy his education and pedigree is, but instead to step into a plot with human characters. All of that permits multiplicity in the poem. So, did Dante intend all this with Erichtho? No. But did Dante craft a poem in which all of this falderall, all this dancing with Erichtho could happen? Yes. And that, I think, is intentional. That movement to open the poem, to invite the reader into the poetic space. I mean, you got invited in in a passage that we just passed when the pilgrim and the poet both say, reader, imagine how scared I was. I didn't ever think I'd get out of there. You're being invited in um, just absolutely forthrightly there. But I would even argue throughout the poem, you're being invited into the interpretive space because the poem is being constructed not as a solid brick wall, but rather as an open, airy cathedral. Think about a cathedral, especially being built in the Middle Ages, before the windows even got put in it. Think how airy it would be. Think about what that space would look like inside a cathedral to a medieval. I know you're used to being in big buildings, maybe in downtown regions that have giant lobbies. Great. But if you're a medieval, walking inside that giant open space of a cathedral, it must have almost knocked you out. This giant enclosed space. And imagine it even before the windows were on it. Have you seen the pictures of Notre Dame right now in Paris without necessarily the windows on it? And it has this kind of wild, open feel as they try to rebuild it. Think about all that. Think about how the poem is being constructed like that. Think about how it is being constructed as this giant cathedral-like edifice that allows a great deal of air and a great deal of space. And the thing that's amazing about cathedrals, Notre Dame, St. Paul's, all of them 
how much movement is permitted inside them. Think about medieval architecture and the medieval world. You can't move around many buildings. Even palaces are constructed with tight rooms and tight corridors. Even palaces are constructed so that you can't necessarily move freely inside giant spaces. They will later in the Renaissance. But in a medieval context, not so much, except for cathedrals. You get inside them and you can move. You can move up and down aisles. So much space to move. That's this poem. So much space to move. I hope you enjoyed this interpolated episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. I hope I came near answering the question, did Dante intend all this with my answer of no, he didn't, but yes, he did. I kind of utterly modern, ambiguous answer that I finally came down on. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast, rate it. If you look on the Apple page that this podcast appears on, you can go right to the bottom. You can rate the podcast. It says leave a review. Open that up and leave a review. I would most appreciate it. Subscribe. Come back next time because next time we're going to be back at the walls of Dis. <laughs> we seem to be at the walls of Dis for forever. We're going to be back at the walls of Dis and something very shocking is going to happen. No, it doesn't have anything to do with demons. It has to do with the reappearance of classical figures next time on Walking with Dante. <laughs>